Genesis 19. Turn with me there. We'll look through part of that passage that uh, Brother Isaac read for us this morning as we continue our look at Abraham and Lot. And we are up to part 12 so far. And we'll just read the first three verses of this chapter, Genesis 19, verses 1 to 3. Let's read. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house. And he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll devote this time to him. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious, precious word. We thank you that we can grow through it, that we can feed on it, that through it our understanding is enlightened and through it we gain your wisdom and your knowledge. Father, we pray for your blessing upon us now as we seek to learn more from you through your word. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher, that he would guide us into your truth and we pray that in all things, whatever we take in, Father, we might use uh, as you would intend it to be used. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've reached this unsavory story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Twin cities uh, that, were formed, that, that actually formed part of a larger complex in that particular region, um, which were quite wealthy at the time so they would have been considered quite wealthy cities they were well off they existed and were built in a very fertile plain and so in that plain much could be grown so um, when lot moved to that area uh, he moved to the outskirts of the city and he would have brought his animals and all his livestock there and around those cities there were farms and 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 other things that were growing uh, all that the city actually needed. So the city formed the hub. In fact, those cities formed the hub, the two big ones being Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only did they have uh, and existed in a fertile plain, so they were rich with agriculture and livestock, but they also had a lot of natural resources too in that area. So they had this uh, really important product called bitumen in those days that could use for a number of different things. And so just to, just to give you a, a, a ballpark sort of bearing, um, the last time we sort of saw the angels visiting Abraham, he was in the plains, plains of Mamre, and now we're talking about Sodom, where these angels have arrived after having visited Abraham. And it's about roughly about ballpark, because they're not entirely sure, about, about 30 kilometers away. So basically a few hours walk, let's say. Okay, um, isn't it interesting how you see in the Bible when cities become big, when they get rich, they generally tend toward what? 
corruption and evil and sin. It's almost inevitable by the looks of it. And so whenever you see people congregating together, forming a society, actually then um, you know, becoming wealthy, rich, safe, advanced, they tend more and more towards sin. Uh, it started really with a place called Babel, with the Tower of Babel. And you see, you see that uh, God had to separate them um, into and scatter them into the whole world because he's the, at one particular point he says, well, if they all stay together, what's going to stop them from doing whatever they want? But God already knew that the more they were together, the more corrupt it would become. And so God chose to scatter mankind through their languages. And that's why he scattered them. So you might say, why did God scatter everyone around the world? Well, by now, if we were all together in one place, yes, it would have, would have been a lovely, you know, everyone together. No, it wouldn't have been. By now, we probably would have destroyed ourselves or God would have destroyed us. The Bible contains a number of references to Sodom, both in the Old and the New Testament, and pretty much all of them refer to sin and judgment. As Egypt became a picture of bondage uh, to sin, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah have become a symbol, have become a picture of depravity, okay, and the depths to which you can go, okay, and the danger that a society faces when they reject God, when they reject the laws of God or the word of God, and they, they are determined to go in their own direction. Because when the, more, the further they get away from God, the further they get away from God's laws, without boundaries, without morals, without a, 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 a guide, okay, which is the word of God, which is God himself, the, the, the fixed object to, to measure yourself against, there is no measure. So you actually end up, you just keep on drifting further and further away and you become more and more evil with time. And so now we've, we've seen and we're going to see uh, how this city uh, will be judged by God and why they were judged by God. And we've finally done a, a, a complete circuit because uh, we've reached back to Lot. We've been with Abraham for a long time and we've, we've looked at his life in depth. But the last time we saw Lot, it, they were just separating at one stage. Okay, so turn, turn with me there to Genesis 13, just to remind ourselves as to where they were last time. And things have changed. From the last time they, they separated, and they had seen each other obviously since that, but the last time that we see Lot in the story, they had separated, Lot had moved towards Sodom, but now we're talking 20 plus years later. You know, what can change in 20 years? A lot, okay? Um, especially in the, in the culture we live in, things can change in a year, okay? So let's have a look at Genesis 13, verse 10. So this is the, the time when the, the shepherds of Abraham and those of Lot were arguing and, and Abraham came up with a suggestion that they would separate from each other and... Um, he gave Lot an option. He gave Lot the choice. And Lot made his choice in verse 10. And it said, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, 
before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, that's where he chose, the plains of Jordan. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So, this is a long time before where we've reached. And the men of Sodom were already wicked and exceedingly sinful. And Lot had separated himself and moved toward there because he saw, mate, that land is rich. I mean, I'll have nothing I'll need if I go there. I'll, I'll bring my, my livestock there. We'll, we'll, we'll grow them there. Who knows what could happen? There's plenty of opportunities for, for us over there. So he went that way and Abraham went toward Canaan. So they separated themselves with Lot moving toward Okay, not in, toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And the city, as I said, was already evil. But now, as we look at chapter 19, where is Lot? Is he in a tent on the outskirts of the city? Is he in the plains with his, uh, with his flock in verse 19? No. It tells us that Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Okay, Now, if you're wondering what a gate is, yeah, a gate's a gate. A gate is where you normally enter in and out of a, of a city, but it's a fortified place. But it's not only a fortified place, but it would generally have been a place where administrative work was done. Even judging people was done. So the, the defenses of the city, as well as the administrative part of the city, was at the gate and built into the gate. So it's not just a gate like a door. This is a gate like a whole complex, which was actually built with offices and things of that nature. And it says there that, that Lot was sitting at the gate. Well, we're not sure what his exact role was, but he was involved in something to do with administration, with local government and the like. Um, it doesn't tell us exactly, but when someone's sitting in the gate, they're there for a particular reason. But the, the thing is, though, it's in the evening. You know, business normally stops <laughs> by five o'clock. Um, and so he's still in the gate. Maybe his job was to even take note of those who would come in and out of the city and ask them, what are you doing here? What's your name? And what, what are your intentions? Maybe that was his job. Maybe that's how he came across these two that were walking into the city when he actually approached them. But look at, let's go back to verse 1 and let's read these three verses again. Because I'd like to look at their encounter now in a bit more detail. So verse 1 then says, And there came two angels to Sodom that evening. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly and they turned in unto him and entered into his house and he made them a feast 
and did bake unleavened bread and they did eat. That sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Because there was someone else who just prepared them a feast before. And it was Abraham. But it's interesting how Lot gets up from his position at the actual gate and he goes to them and he bows himself down to the earth toward them. I mean, that would not have been a normal practice for everyone that he met. He wasn't that kind of a guy. He wasn't that, you know, uh, humble of a guy. Um, he recognized the visitors as not being regular men, but somehow being possibly connected with God or with Abraham. You see, I suspect, and I did a bit of thinking about this, if how did Lot get saved? Anyone know how Lot got saved? Is there a, a story of his testimony? No, there's not. Who would Lot have gotten saved through? Abraham. You see, Abraham had been visited by God. Okay? And as we know, Lot was Abraham's nephew, younger than him, and he looked up to Abraham. And we know now that Lot got saved before they left because you need to understand something when god called abraham out of ur of the Chaldees toward a land that he didn't know this was not a small move this was a monumental move now gentlemen for those of you who govern your houses well if you were to tell your wife uh i'm thinking of moving suburbs darling your wife is going to ask why, where, how, when? All the questions are going to come out, okay? And that is a discussion you are going to have to have. Well, when God calls Abraham to leave everything you've got, mind you, he's 70 years old, all right? And his wife's 60. And all of a sudden, God says to him, I want you to go. Uh, where am I going, Lord? You'll find out. Um, uh, when do you want me to go? Right now. Um, who do I bring? Bring your family with you. Bring everything with you. Or everything. Uh, how long am I going for? Forever. Where is this place again? <laughs> um, can you imagine the conversations that would have taken place? You see, because one thing we know... Not only did Sarah go along, okay, with this, with this whole thing, because she didn't see God. She didn't speak to God. She had to speak to her husband who said, I've spoken to God. God said, we're going to go and we're taking everything with us. And he convinced her to do it, right? So this is some persuasive guy, right? But on top of that, Lot went along as well. Lot said, I'm coming too. Why would you leave your entire culture, the city that you've lived in your whole life, and follow your uncle to a place where you don't know and neither does your uncle know? Well, we know that Lot got saved. So through the testimony of Abraham, Lot came to believe in God. Now, I'm not sure about you, but one of the most effective ways to lead a person to Christ is to share your testimony. Your testimony is often 
the very thing that they need to hear. Why? Because it's something that happened to you. You can't argue about it against a testimony. It's what happened to you. And a testimony normally comes from your heart. It's not some memorized thing that you've, you know, you've just rattled off just because someone told you to say it like this. When you share your testimony, you're telling someone about how God has changed your heart, how he's changed your life. And so when you share that with people, it connects and it touches their heart. And so I suspect that when Abraham got saved and he put his faith in God and Lot came around and said, what's going on here? Oh, God's call. I've met God. Lot's going to ask questions. Who? Why? If Lot's got half a brain, he'd be asking what's going on because his whole life is about to change. And so we see that as a result of those conversations with Abraham, Lot got saved. He put his faith in God. And so here we have two visitors who he'd never met before. And he's bowing down to them. I suspect he's asked some questions in the past. Because when Abraham told Lot about God visiting him, Abraham would have asked, what did they look like? What were they like? How did they speak? How, how, what did he say? And I'm sure they would have been conversations that were had over and over and over again around campfires and around those journeys they took during their lives. And here he is bowing down to these two. And it doesn't tell us what conversation they had. I mean, he just, just says he immediately bows down to the ground. And I suspect that he's recognized already who they are. He may have asked them, what are your names? <laughs> they might have said, Michael and Gabriel. Maybe he recognized the names. Who knows? Either way, he recognized what was going on because he immediately bows himself down to the ground toward them. And like Abraham, Lot says, can you come to my house? I want you to stay with me. Remember what Abraham did when God visited him with the two angels? Abraham said, come and stay with me. Come for a while. Refresh yourself for a little bit and I'll make you some food and then you can, you can go on, right? Abraham showed God hospitality and reverence. And Lot does exactly the same thing. He shows these. He says, don't go. I want you to stay with me. Why would he invite two complete strangers into his home and say, Refresh yourselves at my place. I'm going to make you some food. I want you to stay overnight at my place. Now, Lot had how many children in the house? He had two daughters in the house, unmarried. Looks like they were betrothed, but they were not married. And he's about to invite two men into his house. You know, if you're a man, you wouldn't you'd generally think twice about that, wouldn't you? To invite two strangers into your home yet he does so he knows what's going on and do you know this this pattern that we see with abraham and lot is like a pattern of salvation what do they do both of them when they saw god approaching god was coming toward them 
they ran up and they bowed themselves to the ground to him. And then they invited him in, into their home. They invited them in to sup with them. And it's, it's like a picture of salvation. Recognizing God in Christ is when you recognize who he is, that he is both Lord and Savior, and you bow yourself down to him. You recognize his position. You recognize that he is from heaven, that he is a, a very high one that needs to be honored, that needs to be glorified. And then what you do, you invite him to stay. That's a picture of salvation. Abraham and Lot did those very things. You know, if you remember this verse from Revelation, that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. You see, that's a picture of salvation. Yeah, God visits his people from time to time. And God visits individuals from time to time. There are certain times in a person's life when God comes knocking. And the question really is whether you will open that door and recognize him and invite him in. You see, a lot of people hear the knock. And they go, I'm not going to answer that door. I'm not ready for that just yet. And then another time might come where God knocks again. And they refuse again. Not knowing that another knock may never come again. So my advice to you, my, my plea with you this morning is that if you have not invited Christ into your life, if you've not bowed down and recognized him as Lord and Savior, then open that door, the next knock that comes. Don't waste that knock because it may be the last time you hear it. God visits his people from time to time and visits individuals from time to time. But as we shall see, not all people are welcoming of God's visits as Abraham and Lot were. In fact, when God sent his only son to visit the earth, the Bible tells us that in John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus was rejected by his own people when he came knocking. The angels in this particular passage were happy to stay in the street. When he invited them to his house, they said, no, 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 don't worry about it. We're staying in the street tonight. They weren't worried about anything. They didn't have any fears, did they? Um, they were probably, they probably chose to stay in the street because they wanted to see what went on there, on there at night. You see, all the fun stuff happens at night, doesn't it? When people get up to mischief, because in the dark, people do things that are worse than during the day. And so they wanted to see what was going on at night. Rather than staying with Lot. And they got to see what was going on 
without even going out at night. But Lot was so insistent with them that they agreed. And they, in, they entered into his house. He prepared a feast for them and they ate. These angels had managed two meals with one visit. Right? They did all right for themselves. Okay, Two feasts. In the midst of this peaceful scene, when you wouldn't want it any, any better than this. Honestly, you're, you're in your house. You're having dinner with two angels. Come on. Isn't that a fantastic scene? Peaceful, serene, beautiful. You've, you're just, you've got heaven in your house. Okay, it's a beautiful picture. All of a sudden, in the midst of that, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah reaches the front door. The wickedness of Sodom is demonstrated for us in the following verses, but not confined just to these sins. You see, these become, oftentimes people when think of, of Sodom think of one sin. It's not just one sin, although it was that. In this one story, we see sins of lasciviousness, sodomy, rioting, threats of rape and violence, and much more. Because in verse 4, it then says, But before they lay down, before they got a chance to go to bed that night and lie down and have a sleep, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, which means from every part of the city, were there. You'll notice that though the night had come upon them, and no one had made a formal announcement that these angels had arrived or these men had arrived. Yet all the men um, of all ages had arrived at Lot's house from all parts of the city. Sounds like a sizable crowd to me. And they knew Lot, calling him to send out the two guys that were with him. The sin of Sodom is indeed at its peak. If you consider people from all quarters of the city take part either in a, we're coming to take part in this sin or we're coming along to have fun watching we see a city that has reached the peak of its depravity The fact they came from every part of the city paints a very clear picture for us that the whole city was infected. The whole city. There wasn't a part of it that was free from this type of sin. The fact that it infected both old and young says there was no limit to its age either. When you have a society that may have younger people that are going astray, you would generally have the older ones that are holding some sort of ground. In this particular place, both the old and the young had become completely depraved. Every quarter of the city was the same. And we have this, this group or this crowd congregated around the house of Lot because they heard that there were two new guys in town. Now, looks as if they didn't need social media to let them know there was something going on over there. 
people these days let them let each other know about parties that are going on and this that's going on through social media and they invite their friends mate the whole city was was there the word got out because two new people had arrived now have a think about that that the whole city decides to arrive because two new men arrived you look at sin Sodom becomes like a picture of how sin spreads first of all you know sin is often portrayed in the Bible like yeast being worked through a dough it might start as a block it might start as a powder but then as you knead it as you turn it it begins to spread through the actual dough and it might it might be when you first start maybe in one section but the more you turn it the more you work it the more it spreads evenly throughout the whole thing and then it begins to do its work that's like sin the bible says and bible often points or pictures sin like yeast jesus often warned for example his own disciples about the yeast of the pharisees which essentially is hypocrisy and pride and sinfulness now yeast is worked Yeast that's worked through dough produces what? Gas. (laughs) Exactly. It produces gas. All right? Doesn't do very much. It produces gas. That's why people love it, because it makes the bread fluffy. Okay? It makes it light. Okay? So when you eat it, it's more fluffy. Um, But it produces gas. And it does it through essentially a system of fermentation, really. Okay? it produces something that's not real it's not the real thing it's something else the pharisees really weren't real with their faith they weren't real in terms of what they believed and jesus warns about what can happen in the kingdom of god you know when they allow sin to begin to spread throughout they become corrupted and corruption like yeast can spread very very easily and the thing about uh, yeast is it's invisible to the eye it's invisible all you see is the effects of it after okay once you've spread it through give it some time it starts to grow and so the warning is if you allow sin into your life as in Sodom it will eventually spread to all parts of the city but you know what it needs work all yeast needs all uh, dough needs work doesn't it and that's what people do because the wages of sin is death people work sin they work it it becomes a job to them they become slaves to it and the more they work it the more it does its thing Sodom was like an example of a person or a society that has been thoroughly corrupted by sin. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Whereas they hated and treated with contempt the very Son of God who had come to visit them. And instead they wanted to kill him. You see, they were fake. And that hypocrisy... And yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees wasn't confined to them either. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. 
because you might say, well, you know, they they were a very special breed of people. You know what I mean? They were hip, the hypocrites. They were they were the ruling class. Well, look at what the Lord says about the cities whom He had sent His disciples into to declare the arrival of the Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah, people that should have known well and good who he was. Matthew eleven twenty three. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable, tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Just think of those words for the moment and think about the sin that we've been describing in Genesis with Sodom. He's saying it'll be more tolerable for, for Sodom than it, on the day of judgment than for Capernaum. You see, the sin of rejecting the Lord is ultimately the worst sin of all. There is no greater sin than that. This is the sin where there is no repentance. There is no, once you've rejected the Lord, you can't change that, can you? Because that decision is then final. That sin brings with it the greatest punishment, even worse than Sodom. Because Jesus says if, if miracles had been performed in Sodom, it still would have been around today as evil as it was. And what the lesson for us is here, don't let sin into your life first. Cut it off before it enters the dough. Cut it out before it makes a start. Cut it out before it begins growing. If someone finds, I mean, a lot of you get, you know, these... After you turn 50, they give you these packs to, to send back to them and they give you tests and things. I won't describe what needs to be done. Those who are laughing know what I'm talking about. But the point of all those things is, as much as they are, you know, unsavory, um, is if you catch it early, you can cut it out and deal with it. Okay? And that's the same with sin because sin is like a cancer. When you get it nice and early, when it's small, you can easily cut it out. But once it starts to spread all over the place, it gets to a point where you can't do anything about it. Sin is the same. Sin is like cancer. So it's better not to get, let it in the first time. Don't let it in. It's a bit like when, I, when God said to Cain, Behold, sin lieth at the door. And desire is for you. Don't open the door. Don't let it in. When these men come to the front door of Lot, demanding these two men, you're not going to open the door, are you? Don't open the door and let them in. And that's the same with sin. Do not let it in. It, The moment you let it in means you just made it, Ten times as hard to get rid of. And if you allow it to grow, if you allow it to multiply, it causes other types of problems for you. 
And the very first is that you dishonor God. You dishonor the one that paid for you with his own blood. You dishonor that blood that was shed, that took away your sin. So never treat sin lightly. Treat it for the evil that it is. Don't let sin enter into your lives at any point. Because once it's begun to spread and it makes its home, it is much more difficult to remove. The point is to recognize it and not become comfortable with it. For when we become comfortable with sin, it latches on. Paul warned the Corinthian church for getting too comfortable with sin, with blatant sin, mind you, that was among them. For one among them was engaged in open fornication with a member of his family. And the Apostle Paul says, and you guys are tolerating stuff that not even the, it's named among the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't do this stuff. And you guys are saying it's all okay, as if it's not a problem at all. The toleration of this type of sin among themselves wasn't suitable for a Christian church. And the church was in danger of becoming corrupted because it was slack towards it. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He says, your glorying is not good. You're boasting as if we're, oh, we're, all, we're a very uh, tolerant church. We're okay with all this. You know, we treat everyone with love. And Paul says, your glorying is not good here. What are you boasting about? Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Most, most of you already know that one of the prerequisites for celebrating the Passover was you were supposed to purify your house. And so you would sweep out and look through your whole house and look for what to get rid of? Yeast. You want to celebrate Passover? You want to, you want to sacrifice that lamb and remember what God did? You have to go through your whole house and get rid of every little bit of yeast that may be there. You're meant to thoroughly purge your house of any type of yeast. Why? What, what difference would it have made? Because yeast becomes a symbol of sin. And God wants his people to remove all sin from their lives, to treat it for what it is. Yes, you might like your fluffy bread, your fluffy tip-top bread. I like my fluffy tip-top bread. But when it comes to the picture of sin, God wants us to treat that thing as if we're sweeping through every room, every cupboard, every shelf in our lives and get rid of it. Do we have that consistency in our lives? Please, I pray that we do. Please, honour God, God with your life. Honour the Lord for what he's done for you and me. Put sin where it's supposed to be, out the door of your life. Don't let it in in the first place. And if it's in your house, kick it out straight away. Do not play with sin. Don't play with it. Don't treat it lightly. For inevitably, it will not only corrupt your life, 
But what ends up happening, remember I was that analogy I was giving this morning about the, uh, the army? Your life will affect the lives of other people around you. If you become slack with sin, you will, your life will then begin to invade and infect other people's lives. And they will begin to see it as, oh, that's okay too then. Oh, he thinks it's okay. Or she thinks it's okay. So it must be okay. Anyone who's weaker in the faith may actually be led astray by you. Sin must be avoided and killed. In an ongoing battle, we're called to every day of our lives. And we must fight because the consequences of sin are dreadful. The consequences of sin are leading a world directly to an eternity in hell. And we can't be flippant about it. And this is where we read, we see the depravity of the sin that Sodom has engaged in. Genesis 19.5 then says, And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. So they've surrounded his house. They've gathered themselves from all parts of the city. Can you imagine the feeling of Lot inside the house? And they call out to him, Hey, Lot! Send those guys out that came into your house tonight. We want to know them. Wouldn't have been a good feeling at all. We want to know them. We don't want to just, you know, have a meeting with these guys to find out who they are. No, no, we want to know them carnally. We want to know them in a very special way. You know, I can't believe that some people argue that this is not about sodomy. That this is that that they say that the the, the sin here is not about uh, homosexuality or anything like that. It's obviously this is not about them getting together in a in a council situation and having a meeting, a council meeting. This is about them wanting to know these men and it's all the men of the town wanting to know these men in a, a sexual manner. This is the same type of knowing that the Bible says where Adam knew his wife and conceived Cain. And this is why Sodom and Gomorrah has been historically equated with the sin of homosexuality. And that's definitely part of it. But we're well beyond this particular point. Because it now includes not just homosexuality, which they, they were no doubt engaged in, but it includes the threats of rape. Uh, a whole society becoming comfortable with treating strangers, visitors that have come to you, uh, as novel ways to sin. There's something new. Let's go and see if we can do that. This is the fruit of a life of sin. This is the result of a life being lived in sin with no boundaries or morals. A life where God is not in the picture. A life where sin is so common, so done every day. It's like having the same bread every day and you say, I want to try a new bread now. I've had enough of that bread. I want, I want bread with something different now. So they go look for something different. And then they get sick of that one and they go to the next thing. And they want to try something else, they go to the next thing. This is, this is the life of a whole city that was in this particular place. 
where they'd reached a point that it was acceptable to rape visitors and new people because it was something new to do together. Jude 1.7 describes it in this way, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh and set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. As I shared with you last week, their inclination, Sodom's and Gomorrah's inclination to sin had become so great had become greater and greater and greater over time that they, they, they got down to the very depths of Satan. Their consciences were well and truly seared. And the same as the people who had been destroyed by a flood many years before, God had seen, as he says, that every imagination of their heart was now evil. They were looking for novel ways to sin. And so here we have a home in the middle of this city that had sunk to such depths, demanding that they be given to them. And so verse 16 says, And Lot, in his panic, I would imagine, went out at the door unto them. So he, he rushes out, thinking if they come in, we're, we're, we're gone as over here. Or these men, what sort of a testimony is this going to be? If something happens to them at my house, these visitors from heaven here, and Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, <laughs> I like that word brethren, he calls them brethren, do not so wickedly. So Lot's, Lot tries the whole diplomacy business first. He's got a crowd in front of him, okay, wanting to rape these two guys, and he, he tries diplomacy and he puts himself, in, to his credit, in harm's way, he puts himself in the middle and he tries to dissuade them from carrying out such a deed. And notice he says he calls them his brethren. Brothers, come on, bro. You know me. Come on, you can't do this. This is my house. These guests are my. These are my guests. Come on, go and do something else tonight. He tries to appeal as one of them that he's a citizen of the same town. Hey, I'm I'm part of this town. That I'm one of you. You know me, and I know you. He appeals to them and he says, oh, come on, you can't do something like this. This is bad. But he also knows that they're not going to change their minds. It's too far now. They've come all this way. They've organized themselves all this much. And they want to finish this party. So he does something absolutely extraordinary. He says in verse 8, Behold now, I have two daughters. Which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Lot offers him a substitute. He's willing to sacrifice his own daughters, which seems completely perverted and outrageous. I can't imagine what it would have been going through his head to make them that offer at that point. 
that maybe his own thinking had, was mixed up. Obviously, he thought it was infinitely worse for these two messengers from God to be treated like that than his own daughters. I can't imagine if they weren't messengers from God, how he would be offering his own daughters for them. But the purity of his own daughters, which were under his care, it was his job to protect it, could be offered up in such a haphazard way. He contradicted his own position as a father and a protector of his family. I can't imagine if his daughters heard that, what they would have even thought. Why did he do it? I, I have no idea why he did that. No idea. I've read a couple of commentaries and I can't see the point of what he did. The only thing I can put it down to is that he panicked and he was confused. And he said something off the top of his head which was absolutely stupid. He was a desperate man by the looks of it, looking for desperate solutions, and he was willing to offer anything to save these two angels. I don't know. Maybe there was no time. So he offers them something which is probably the most precious thing to him that he had, to these depraved men. Did they accept it? No, they didn't care about that. They wanted one thing. It says in verse 9, and they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn and he will needs be a judge. Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. Obviously, they weren't impressed. Whatever he offered them wasn't interesting them. They outnumbered Lot and his family and didn't care about his offer. In fact, they turned on him, saying that, Who are you? Who, who are you? you? You're not even, you, you're a visitor here. You're a sojourner. You came and visited us a number of years ago. You were living in a tent. We remember you on the outskirts. And now you want to be judge over us, the people of this city. How dare you? How dare you judge us, telling us what's right and what's wrong? And so they threatened to treat him worse than they were going to treat the other two. It gives you an idea of what they were thinking of doing to the other two. So they began to advance towards him in a violent way, and they actually had him pinned against his own front door. In Lot's case, there was no room for bargaining. There's only one room, only one thing to do at that particular point is run. It's the same advice we're given. When it comes to sin, if these people are a picture of sin and depravity, you know what you don't do with it? You don't bargain with it. Don't offer it anything. Because it has no intention other than to have you completely. Sin is not something you play with. Sin is not something you bargain with. Don't offer it anything that is of value. Because it does not care. The only thing you can do with sin is to run from it. 
The Bible tells us over and over, don't bargain with it, don't respect it, don't play with it. It says, flee fornication, flee idolatry, flee youthful lusts, flee sin. You never play with sin. Don't get comfortable with it, for it will one day destroy you. In the same manner, I want you to understand, as much as Lot tried to reason with these guys, when you can't reason with it, And he went to them and he said, Bros, I'm one of you, my brothers. Did they recognize him as a brother at that point? No. Um, understand that the friend, the world is not your friend. The world is not your friend. The world does not love you, so you should not love it. The Bible tells us that the love of the world is enmity with God. It's not the same thing. It's the exact opposite. And we should be aware that even though we exist within this world, even though you may have friends and colleagues and that, they are not enduring. Lot was living in a city for who knows how long. Yet when, when push came to shove, he was not their brother, despite as much as he said he was. And the same is true for us. There may be many connections that we have with people in this world. We may have connections through our race. We may have connections with our culture. We may have connections through things such as sports and hobbies and the cities we live in and the suburb we live in, and the speech we have and the, and the things that we know. But I'll tell you what, those are only temporary things. Those are never things we should hold on firmly. Those things, when push comes to shove, mean nothing. If push comes to shove, if you tell them that what they're doing is sinful, I'll guarantee you all your connections won't mean... What word am I looking for? will mean zilch, yeah. They'll mean nothing. Because when push comes to shove, they'll tell you, you're not like me. You're not part of me. You don't belong here. And we need to understand that. And Lot maybe didn't understand that at that point because he was living within the city. But the moment, as Lot says, don't do this wicked thing. The moment you tell them, that's wicked is the moment your real connection with them is going to show up is going to come out are they really connected with you well we'll find out when you tell them that they're doing something wrong the world will the moment you bring up its sins and the evil of its beliefs will reject you as a brother as a sister will accuse you of being a judge over them and will turn on you and jesus says don't cast your pearl before swine because they'll 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 won't understand they'll trample them underfoot and then they'll turn and, and and attack you and they'll think they're doing a great cause as well it's interesting to watch the cancellation of people in our culture today through social media that's just an example of what I'm talking about. One day they're friends and brothers and everything's hunky-dory and all things are good. But if someone says something that offends the group, that's not in, that not in the 
the line with everyone else, they're cut off without mercy. And often all it takes to destroy a relationship built over years is one statement. But this is the nature of our world, where strict conformance is being demanded more and more and more as the days go on. You see, as they've removed the, the righteousness of God, the laws of God, they are replacing those laws with their own. And they are worse than God from that perspective. They demand, they demand strict obedience. Otherwise, you will be judged on the spot. God is patient. God gives time. God allows repentance. But oftentimes, this world doesn't. And Lot was nearly cut off by the men of Sodom when he called out what they were doing. It's not funny. It seems to be a lot of that going on these days. Being cut off for calling out something as a sin. But I want to remind you about something. It's not our job to change people's thinking about sins. It's not our job. You can be arguing all day and all night with people, and believe me, I've done it, on all types of social media about topics that's a sin, and you're trying to convince them that it's a sin and that it's wrong. And if they don't believe the Bible, you've got zero chance of, of changing their mind about something. Because without the guide, without the foundation of truth, what have they got to compare it to? What are they judging against? Nothing. So it's often a beating your head against a brick wall proposition when you're trying to, when you're trying to, to explain to people that abortion's a sin. That homosexuality is a sin. That any type of, of sexual activity outside of marriage called fornication in the Bible is a sin. Or any other type of sin is a sin. You see, the only time a person can ever truly appreciate what sin is, is when they come to Christ and appreciate what he's done for them. Because you see, then it's Christ that opens up their eyes to how bad sin actually is. It's the spirit that opens up their eyes. And remember something, I remember this, uh, I heard this a long time ago, and it said that our job is not to clean fish. Jesus makes us fishers of men, but not the cleaners. We're called to catch the fish and bring them to him. He does the cleaning. Thank God for that. But let's finish up with our story. Genesis 19, 10 to 13. And this is good news for Lot, who was stuck and pinned at that door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot, pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law and, and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord and the Lord have sent us to destroy it. The angels had seen everything they needed to see. They went there as two witnesses to confirm 
and they saw everything they needed to see at the within from within Lot's house. Second Peter two six. He says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. The men of Sodom had become proud, arrogant, self-willed. They had no one above them. They spoke evil of dignitaries that had come from heaven to the earth. They wanted to abuse them. They wanted to walk after uncleanness. But understand something. God can save the righteous. Those who trust in him, though not perfect, still have bowed the knee to Christ and have trusted in the Lord to save them. Today, if you are not saved, please make today that day. Bow the knee and receive Christ as your Saviour. And next week we will see the judgment that comes down on Sodom, God willing. Thank you.